Well, friends, we've been uh, slowly working our way through this sort of second, second part, the second act in the book of Acts. And as we have gone through it, we have been asking uh, big questions, big questions about how did God work in history to bring about his plan of salvation? Did God work in history to bring about his plan of salvation? Or is everything that happened uh, that got us to the point that we're at today just happen chance? Uh, we've, we've come to see that as Luke records history, for that is what he is doing, God has very much been at work. We've been asking ourselves questions of how is it that God brings salvation, uh, firstly uh, to the people uh, of Israel, and then begins to expand that to bring salvation to other peoples. We've asked the question, who is it that can be saved? We've spoken about what is salvation We've come to discover that uh, in the book of Acts, certainly, one of the central focal points is that salvation is about the forgiveness of sins and being restored in our relationship uh, with God. Last week, we looked at uh, the instrument that God would use for uh, global expansion to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. After all, the promise that Jesus had given was to his followers, you will be my witnesses. That is, you will bear witness to the things that took place in my life and my death and resurrection. And you will bear witness to the implications that that has had in your life in restoring you to your relationship with God. You will be my witnesses. And so a lot of the stories we discover are actually people's personal testimonies of how they came to be Christians. And and just as a a slight little footnote on there, can I just encourage you to, uh, in your own life, give some time and some thought to your testimony, to your bearing witness, to your telling your story of how Jesus broke into your life, maybe over a period of years, maybe in an instant, whatever that might be. Because one of the things that we discovered through the book of Acts is that God uses stories, He uses people's stories of their encountering Jesus to tell other people about Jesus so that they can encounter Him for themselves. So it is good and right, and I think even important for us as Christians, to think about our own conversion and how we came to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, that's just a footnote. Let's get back into the story. So we meet this guy, Saul. Uh, God breaks into his life. Uh, He is converted. He begins to preach Jesus. The promise of Acts 1 was, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. We've been in Jerusalem. We've been in Judea. We've made it to Samaria. Um, We've seen uh, an Ethiopian eunuch become a Christian. We've heard that Saul is going to be God's special instrument uh, to the rest of the world. But the question that still, or this question that should be on the front of our minds is, what is it that's needed for expansion and growth in the kingdom of God? And I think it's an important question for us to ask ourselves, even in the 21st century, what is needed for expansion, for the expansion and the growth of the kingdom of God? Is it a good strategic plan? Is it having a big and right and good vision? Is it having the financial and human resources necessary for this expansion to take place and to go out? 
what is needed for expansion and growth. And what we'll discover in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 is that what is needed for the expansion and growth of the gospel, the church, and the kingdom of God is actually none of those things. What is needed for expansion and growth in the kingdom of God is clarity about the message of the gospel and the compassion that both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son showed to people. And so we pick up in Acts chapter 9 a couple of small stories that would be really uh, easy to pass over. And that's why we actually had them read as their own Bible readings. We get back and we uh, rediscover Peter. Peter's now living in a time uh, that, where, that is marked uh, by peace. Acts chapter 9 verse 31, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria... So just if you're, if you're reading your Bible carefully, you go, hang on, there's that promise again, except it's only Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Hey, where are the ends of the earth that Jesus promised? Well, the church there was enjoying a time of peace. And the reason that the church there was enjoying a time of peace is because that's the only place where there was the church, but they were at a time of peace. They were being strengthened, they were being encouraged by the Holy Spirit, they were growing in numbers, they were living in the fear of the Lord, and you think to yourself, boom, there it is. Time for expansion. Let's hit the ends of the earth. Let's go. It's go time. And then you read these two small stories about Peter. Peter was traveling about the country, the same country where there was peace. And he visited the Christians, the saints in Lydda. And he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. And he healed him. And it's interesting because it's very reminiscent of another healing that Jesus himself did. In fact, of a number of healings that Jesus did where he healed and he raised paralytics. So you read this and you go, hang on. Well, there you go. Peter's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Then we read the second story. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. And she uh, was always doing good and she was helping the poor. And about that time, she became sick and she died. And the rest of the story plays out that Peter goes and he raises her from death. It's ironic because when Jesus walked the earth, he also raised a woman from death. Her name was Talita. I can't help but think that that, that Luke, prompted by the Lord, records these particular stories to highlight that Peter very much was walking in the footsteps of Jesus. That Peter very much was dependent upon Jesus. Because even when he does these healings, Jesus Christ heals you, he says, in verse 34. And in verse 40, when he uh, raises Tabitha, he says, he bows down on his knees, he prays, and then he says, Tabitha, get up. So you have this walking in Jesus' footsteps, Uh, you have this uh, dependence upon Jesus, but then you read it and you go, but hang on, he's only going to the saints. He's only going to the people who are already Christians. He's only going to the Jewish Christians and the disciples. Peter, it seems, is lacking a certain amount of clarity with regards to who the gospel is for and the compassion that the Lord Jesus himself showed without prejudice to all people that he encountered. And as we carry on reading through chapter 10 and chapter 11, uh, we'll get more clarity ourselves uh, on this reality that Peter was lacking it, that that Peter was uh, missing something. 
And that the reason that the gospel wasn't ready to go out into the world had nothing to do with what God was doing, but had everything to do with Peter and the other disciples misunderstanding, not being clear what it meant for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And it's in those couple of stories, and if you want a heading for that, if you're writing notes and you need something to put above that, you can, talk, you can just call that God's preparation of Peter. Because that's really what he's doing. God is preparing Peter to do something new. And so we come to chapter 10, and we meet a man called Cornelius. We'll come back to him in a second, because God also prepares him. So I want you to jump down to chapter 10 and verse 9. Peter, at about noon, uh, is um, praying up on the rooftop. And uh, as would be the case at noon, at least for me, you get hungry and you wanted something to eat. And while the meal was busy being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he has this vision from heaven. He saw heaven open. He saw something large like a sheet uh, coming down, uh, full of all kinds of animals. Now, it's important to note where Peter was geographically. Luke uses geography, uh, and geography in the book of Acts is incredibly, incredibly important. I've already given you a hint this morning, okay? He was in Joppa. I gave you a hint a little bit earlier on in my announcement. Where else do we discover Joppa in the Bible? Any guesses? Jonah, okay. Just a little hint there. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, when God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, Jonah goes down to Joppa to board a ship to go to Tarsus, which was in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Because he couldn't bear the thought that God would show grace and mercy to a people that were not God's covenant people, the Israelites, the Jews. And so he tries to run away from this mission of going to warn the Ninevites that if they don't repent, God's going to destroy them, and he goes down to Joppa. I don't think it's an accident that Peter's in Joppa, and he gets this vision that he is now going to uh, open up, uh, cut the ribbon, uh, blast down uh, the gates to take the gospel to all the nations, the very corners of the earth. And and God does this in quite an interesting way. Uh, He gives him a crash course uh, on who it is uh, that God deems worthy of the gospel. So here's the background. The background is this. The nation of Israel was called, promised, chosen, grown, built, and established by God to be God's special covenant people. They were to be given a land... They were to be made into a great nation, but God also said of them in this covenant that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They were to be a beacon of light to the people of the world who were not yet the people of God. They were to be, as they lived in the world, a demonstration of God, a demonst- demonstrating His greatness, His goodness, his faithfulness, his love, and above all else, his holiness, his set-apartness in the world because of his sinless perfection as the creator God of the universe. And so in God, calling, promising, choosing, growing, building, and establishing his people, in the book of Exodus, they're given the Ten Commandments and they're given laws to follow. A number of those laws were food laws. 
Now, contrary to what you've heard on the radio, seen on the National Geographic channel, and read on some blog somewhere, the food laws were not there for hygienic reasons. God didn't give them the food laws to stop the coronavirus in the midst of Israel. That's not why they were there. The food laws were there so that the nation of Israel could stand out, be different, and be set apart in the way that they lived for God. In following the food laws, they were demonstrating faithful obedience to the Lord. Uh, God, who is uh, removed from us in the sense that we can't see Him and we can't taste Him and we can't touch Him, uh, we can't experience Him as, he were, as, as it were in, in the way that we experience so many physical things, he is gracious and kind to us, and He gives us physical expressions and experiences by which we can demonstrate faithful obedience. Uh, we do something like that when we uh, practice baptism, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But for the nation of Israel, they were given the food laws. And if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's quite astounding. Every time they went to the shops, they had to shop and think about their holiness to the Lord, for they could only eat certain foods. Every time they sat down at a meal to eat, one of the most fundamental things that any human being can ever do, they were practicing faithful, dependent, obedient holiness in the choices that they made in the food that they ate. It wasn't just that God was a killjoy and didn't want them to eat bacon. It was that this was an act of obedience to the Lord that demonstrated an inward reality that was taking place in their hearts. That was what was going on. It was experiential worship every time they ate food. God, we're told, and, and just you know, so that you get an idea of, of what took place, is Jesus then comes and he says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. In Mark chapter 7, he actually declares all food to be clean. Peter obviously forgot that Bible study. Uh, and, and what the Jews had done is they had taken the food laws and they had turned them into something that was a badge of honor. They had turned them to things that made them proud. They had turned it into their own self-righteousness. They thought that somehow in following all of these things, in keeping God's law and commands, He would look with favor upon them because of how pious they were. But we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that the Lord says, "You are the you, uh, Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Okay, wait for it. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, he is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love. The Lord chose you for no other reason than that He decided that He would love you and He would keep His promise to you. And, and, and these food laws were only there uh, so that the Israelites could enact uh, their faithfulness in response to God's love and faithfulness shown to them. 
So, so that's the backgrounds. Uh, that is um, what what we come into in Acts chapter 10. That's what Peter's basically fighting against. The problem was that the Israelites had failed in their mission. They were not holy. They were not faithful among the nations. They disobeyed God in the land. They were punished and they were humbled. So when Jesus comes, he comes to create a holy people. But a people who are not holy through outwardly observing statutes that God had put down... He came to create a people who were inwardly transformed in the heart from the inside out to be a holy people. And so he canceled the food laws. After all, food only ever affects your stomach. It doesn't pollute your heart. Food can't make you clean or unclean. And so Jesus turns that whole system into something redundant, something that no one could boast in. For whatever reason, though, the, the wall in Peter's mind was up. So this vision comes, back to Acts chapter 9, a voice says to him, get up Peter, kill and eat. And in, uh, in a way that only Peter can do this, you know, when, 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 Peter, when Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter says, no Jesus, not you. Now he's saying to him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, verse 14, Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So the voice called to him a second time. And he said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened, we're told, three times. Okay, Peter, it takes three times for Peter to get it into his head of what it is that God is trying to teach him. Always, always three times. The cock crows three times. Peter denies Jesus three times. He has to have this vision three times. And immediately the sheep was taken up to heaven. What God was doing in that moment is that he was finally... Uh, breaking into Peter's heart. John Stott actually says that on one level, uh, the story in Acts 9 and 10 is the story of Peter's conversion. Not his conversion in the sense that he first believed in Jesus and had his sins forgiven, but his conversion to the understanding that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is to go to all races, all languages, all nations. It is the conversion of Peter and his prejudice. Friends, I wonder this morning if there isn't something in there for us. Perhaps we believe the gospel, we've had our sins forgiven, but there's an area of our life where we still hold a prejudice. And that prejudice needs to be converted and needs to come under the clarity of the gospel. And we need to ask the Lord uh, to give us uh, compassion uh, for whatever it is that we show prejudice again, against. Uh, when Jesus died, we're told that the temple, that the, the curtain that was in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, removing the barrier between humans and God, between not the Jews and God, between all humans and God. If the nation of Israel was called to be a blessing to all of the nations, here is God uh, preparing for that expansion to the ends of the earth by finally bringing this clarity into place. Paul in Ephesians 2 would later write about how the barrier, the dividing wall, has been broken down through Jesus' death on the cross. 
All of this to say that this is the preparation that has to take place in Peter's life. The way that God expands and builds his kingdom is through preparing his people to take the gospel out with clarity and compassion. The second person that gets prepared in this story uh, is Cornelius. We meet him in chapter 10, verse 1. It was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. Uh, that means he was a, a Roman citizen. He was a soldier. He was in charge of an entire regiment. He and his family were devout. They were God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. He prayed to God regularly. There's this thing behind Peter. I don't know if you've ever had this in your life where you think to yourself, you know someone, you have this relationship with someone, you think about them, I know they're not a Christian. I know they haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, but boy, I look at their life and I think to myself, if only they had that last piece, how amazing they would be, how wonderful it would be that the Lord could use them because they, 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 they do good. They are devout. They are uh, better than I am as a person. And I call myself a, a Christian. I don't know if you've ever had, kind of come across that person and you just think they're just missing that, that one piece, that that ultimate reality that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and what would it look like in their life if that were to happen? It wouldn't be this massive change like Saul where they go from, and this is the interesting thing about conversion, isn't it? Um, you have Saul who was literally killing Christians one day and then preaching Jesus the next. Uh, you also have people like Cornelius who are converted, who was doing everything that a Christian would do outwardly but didn't have a personal relationship with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you will, God prepares Peter, but he also prepares Cornelius. He gave generously to those in need, and one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, what is it, Lord? Again, presence of mind to say, what is it, Lord? And the angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before the Lord, before God. Now send men to Joppa. We're back in Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with staying with Simon the Tanner. It's really ironic because um, you know what tanners did, right? They handled dead things. Do you know that one of the things that you weren't allowed to do that made you unclean in the law that God had given was if you handled dead things? There's another little sign that Peter just didn't have the clarity yet. He was quite happy to stay with a Jewish tanner who handled dead things, who was very obviously unclean within the realms of the law. But he wasn't prepared to take the gospel out to Gentiles who were unclean. Peter's heart had to be transformed, but so did Cornelius. And so you have this thing, and when the angel of the Lord spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, and he told them everything, and he sent them to Joppa. It just keeps getting, Joppa, Joppa, Joppa. Why Joppa? Well, it's because something's going to happen here. Uh, something big is going to happen out of Joppa, just like it did back in the book of Jonah. So God prepares Cornelius. God turns a Gentile. He's not converted. We're going to look at his conversion next week. He's not converted, but at the very least, this Gentile, Cornelius, he's at the very least turned into a seeker. He is seeking God. 
It's not dissimilar to what Paul says in Acts 17, that God has placed us to live in time and place and geography, and He is not far from us. And He does this in order that we might seek Him and somehow find Him, and so call on the name of the Lord and be saved and have our sins forgiven. Now, he's not saying for one moment that Cornelius is saved because of his performance. We might read it and say, well, he had all the outward signs, so obviously it was there. He's not saying he was saved because he prayed or gave to the poor or any of those things. He did all those things, but he was missing that one piece. He needed that one person to come and tell the story to be the witness of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for him. But you've got to come back next week to hear that part of the story. He's not saved by his performance, but God is doing something in his life, turning him into a seeker. I think there's a wonderful prayer there for us to pray for people that we know, not just that they would become Christians, but God would turn them into seekers, that God would prompt something within them. I know there's some of you who are sitting here this morning, and and God's done that for you in the not-so-distant past. Something happened, something jerked, something pulled, something tugged, and God turned you into a seeker. And in turning you into a seeker, He found you, and you found Him. For Cornelius, he was ripe, and he was ready for the gospel. And God is going to change Peter's heart. He gives him a command right at the end. Um, They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking you. Get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Friends, there is a world mission that's taking place. It's not always easy to see. It's not always easy to capture. It's not often impressive in the world's definition of success. Acts 10 is pivotal in history, though, for the family of God to grow into all the nations of the world. Let me make it singular. Acts 10 is pivotal for you being a Christian here this morning. Acts chapter 10 is your backstory. And so we're so grateful that God gave Peter a vision and a command, that he prepared Peter, that he changed Peter's heart, so that the door could be opened to the gospel, so that it could go out into the ends of the world. This isn't just a piece of history. This is God bringing his compassion and his care and pouring it out on you and on me 2,000 years later. The problem for both Peter and Cornelius at this point in the story was that neither of them understood the cross properly. Peter didn't understand it properly to preach it to the nations. Cornelius didn't understand it properly to be able to believe it and find the forgiveness of his sins that he so longed for and he so desired. Even though the cross was a past event, they failed to appreciate its significance. And friends, that's always going to be the mark for believers. It's a past event, but we can become so clouded by this world that we can fail to appreciate and give thanks for its significance. We will struggle to have compassion and clarity that comes from the cross. Cornelius, if Peter sort of represents Christians, believers, Cornelius represents unbelievers, 
who fails to appreciate at this point the basic wonder of the cross. Because at this stage, no one has communicated it to him and its implications for him in his life. The problem, though, friends, is that the cross, the cross, the cross can begin to uh, stagnate both in the church and the world. The cross, the cross, the cross is something that we can easily fail to appreciate. We become so excited about secondary things, the things of this world, the things of this life, the stuff, the passions of our eyes, the things that we think will bring ultimate significance and satisfaction. And we fail to get excited about the things that have to do with eternity. I have no doubt that it was wonderful in that time that Peter was living when there was peace in Jerusalem and in Galilee, uh, even in Samaria, and they were able to move freely. But God was doing more. God wanted more. And so, friends, let me say two things by way of application and in closing this morning. Number one is this. I hope and pray for you that you will not be happy with the natural things of this world. I hope and pray that you will not be satisfied with the natural plans of your life. I hope that you will not be satisfied with the fruitfulness of your life over the last decade. I hope that for us as a church, we won't be happy with the natural things, but that we will have a longing for the supernatural. Now, I'm not trying to guilt us into anything, and I don't want us to despair, but I hope that if I have another decade, and if you have another decade, that it will be marked by more supernatural clarity, and more supernatural compassion, and more supernatural fruitfulness. That it won't be marked by this life, but that it will be marked by eternity. That's the first thing. I hope that you won't be satisfied with the status quo. I hope that there will be a sort of holy discontentment in your life where you will long for super, the supernatural things of the Lord. And that the clarity that can only come from Him and His spirits and the compassion that is demonstrated throughout the whole story of the Bible for people is something that will mark and characterize your life. Here's the second thing that I want to say in closing, and that is this. There may be the... Prejudice is real. Prejudice is very, very real. And what I want to say about prejudice is firstly this. You may have experienced prejudice at the hands of a Christian. And it is borderline put you off of the gospel. Can I say to you that if you have experienced prejudice at the hands of a Christian, at the hands of a church, if if there is um, baggage that you're holding on to because a Christian or a church treated you in a particular way, I want you to hear of God's compassion this morning. Even the Apostle Peter messed up. I want you to know that Christians mess up. That forgiveness is for them as much as it is for you. And I want to invite you this morning to have compassion on that person or that church or that group of people who showed you prejudice. They called themselves Christians, but they treated you in a particular way. I want to invite you this morning to 
finally let that go. Because the way that they treated you wasn't right. In fact, it was downright wrong. But that's not the way that God treats you. Perhaps for some reason they lacked some clarity on the gospel. I read a story just this morning. I don't know if it's true. I can't verify it. But there's a story about Mahatma Gandhi. As a young man, he read the Bible and he actually decided that he would and wanted to become a Christian. He thought that this was the solution to the caste system in India. And so one Sunday, he plucked up the courage to go to church, to become a Christian, and the usher at the door chased him away and said, you're not welcome here, go to your own people. I know that that happens in people's lives. That's a terrible story, and maybe somehow it's your story. But I would invite you this morning to know God's compassion in your life, and to show that compassion to whoever it was that showed you that prejudice. I think the second thing that's part of that is that we need to go and carefully explore deep the inner workings of our hearts. I doubt there's anybody here that's going to judge somebody else for having bacon for breakfast. I don't think that that's the prejudice that we show. But I do wonder what prejudices there might be in our lives that block us from having the clarity and the compassion that is needed to take the gospel out into the world. I wonder what people might see in us, our own prejudice, the way we speak, the way we joke, the way we treat people, the way we look at people, our body language. I I don't know, it could be anything. But in what way are we perhaps guilty of showing prejudice? Maybe it's not against a race or a language. Maybe it's an age thing. Maybe we show prejudice to older people or younger people. Maybe somehow we even are married and we show prejudice towards our wife or our husband. We show prejudice to the opposite sex. I don't know. But as long as we show prejudice, the gospel, and here's the thing, that's the question. Remember the beginning? The first question was, how is the gospel going to grow and expand? What's the strategy? Well, the strategy was actually Peter's heart. And it was Cornelius' heart. And it was God preparing both of those hearts. It's not until that is put right that the gospel can go out and that the nations of the world can become Christians. God had to deal first with Peter's prejudice. And so let me invite you this morning to dig deep into the dark recesses of your heart this morning. And with the clarity that the gospel brings and the compassion that the Father has shown us already in forgiving our sins, invite you to deal with your own prejudice. Invite you to deal with the way that you relate to others and even the way that you relate to Christians in this church and unbelievers outside of it. How do you relate to Peter and how do you relate to Cornelius? For friends, the challenge remains that in every local context, to express the reality of the fellowship of the gospel, we must abandon every form of prejudice and we must begin to adopt in our lives habits such as sharing food. And expressing hospitality, which practically demonstrates the unity, the clarity, and the compassion that the gospel proclaims. And so, let me ask you, are are you ready for gospel expansion? Are you ready for God to use you in your life to bring about gospel growth in his kingdom? May we all search our hearts and our minds deeply through the lenses of the Scripture as the Spirit moves in us to check ourselves. 
You've got to come back next week for the rest of the story to hear how it works itself out. You can read it in the meantime if you want. But next week we'll be having a good look at uh, what it entails uh, for the gospel to go to the Gentiles and what exactly it is that's needed. Because just so you know, incidentally, like next week on the book of Acts, Peter's going to have to go to the church in Jerusalem and say, Hey guys, guess what? <laughs> the Gentiles are becoming Christians and it's legit. See you back here next week. But friends, maybe just all jokes aside, uh, just before we sing our last song, let me invite you to just bow your heads, close your eyes, and take a moment. The Bible says if we hear God's word today, we shouldn't harden our hearts. So take this moment just now for a second to search your heart, examine your mind, and ask the Lord to do a work in it to bring clarity and compassion within you. After a couple minutes, we'll stand and we'll sing together.